Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out when to order an anti-nuclear antibody test. Lupus shares many non-specific symptoms of tiredness, joint aches, muscle aches, with a wide number of common conditions um, that would present to general practice. And ANA is relatively common in the background population. So if you request ANA in patients without the right sort of clues, you're going to end up having positive results for lots of patients who actually don't have SLE. But before that, austerity has gripped Europe in the wake of the financial crisis and budgets are being squeezed. But it's not hospital funding that has the biggest effect on the overall health of the nation, but changes to the living situation of Europe's citizens. To try and prevent a slide back in the gains we've made in public health, WHO Europe has launched its Health 2020 Framework, a wide-ranging report on the social determinants of health and evidence-based policy levers to try and implement them. Health 2020 was led by the man whose eponymous reports has set the landscape for this, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, who I spoke to earlier this week. So you've been talking about social, determ- social determinants of health for a long time, and I think you know, the case has really been won. Um, but yet still things haven't changed massively. Uh, and this new report is now looking much more widely. Um, and it's got a lot of policy recommendations in there. So, um, I mean, is this a new, a new phase in it? Is this the, the sort of really trying to, to change policy to, to make this happen? Well, when I look at the scene... I choose to look at the good things, Mm. not the bad things or the uh, lack of activity. So let's go back. When we published the global report, the WHO Commission on Social Determinants of Health in 2008, the question is, what would happen to that report? Would anybody take it seriously? Would there be any traction? Mm. We had the first World Conference on Social Determinants of Health in Rio de Janeiro in 2011. 126 countries were represented. There were something like 60 ministers of health and other government ministers came, international organizations. Good heavens. I mean, a thousand people gathered in Rio. Okay, it was Rio. You might ask what they have <laughs> gathered in Bradford. <laughs> um, but a thousand people gathered to discuss this three years after we published it. Yes. And some countries took it up. Britain took it up. I was commissioned to do the Marmot Review. Um, Brazil took it up. Norway took it up. We heard this morning that Sweden as a country didn't take it up, but Malmö as a city Mm. took it up, and other cities in Sweden have taken it up. So, yes, it's true. I could tell you about all the countries that have ignored it, but I'd rather focus on the ones that have taken it seriously and it's on the agenda. So then we look at the English review that I was commissioned to do because of the European review. Mm. I mean, when Alan Johnson was Secretary of State for Health and he said, in the light of the Global Commission report and its excellent recommendations, what could we do in England to apply those recommendations for further reduction of health inequalities in England? So that was a tangible manifestation of people taking it seriously in the policy agenda. Then when the Conservative-led coalition government came in, the question is, would they ignore it? They issued a public health white paper 
said this is the government's response to Michael Marmot's review. We have to put reduction of health inequalities at the centre of our public health strategy. And we won't achieve it through the healthcare system alone, but it needs action on the wider determinants of health. Mm. And if you ask, well, okay, what have they been doing? Actually, we've had much more action at local level. Local government has taken it up and three quarters of local authorities have implementation plans for my review in England. So then a third manifestation of real action is being commissioned to do this European review. And my first reaction when I was asked to do it was, I've kind of done it. I've done it for the global level. I've done it for one country, England. Do we really want to do it again? And I didn't dwell on that for terribly long because my answer was yes, because it's a way of pushing the agenda forward, of getting take up, of getting another shot in the arm, getting new evidence, dealing with the countries at various stages of income and development across Europe. So I would say that the fact that this report was commissioned and approved by 53 member states in the European region is a statement that we're getting traction. Mm. You said earlier that, you know, in England, as an example, they're putting this report and the social determinants of health as a, a sort of core to public health strategy. But your report talks a lot about um, areas that will be outside of sort of public health remit and how they could really help to to change some of the um, the poor health in in some areas, uh, particularly looking at um, intervention in early childhood. Um, is there any traction going on there? Well, there's a lot of good reasons to invest in early childhood. One of which is improving health and reducing health inequalities, but not the only one. There's traction there in that we've convinced a lot of people how important this is. And when I say we, I mean all the people who are concerned with early childhood, not just me and my colleagues. We've convinced a lot of people that this is really important. And lots of people are wanting to pursue it, to continue to pursue the importance of early childhood, despite the cuts to local government, despite the number of short start children's centres that have been forced to close Mm. because of cuts to local government. So the general funding climate has been adverse, but there are committed people who really want to continue to pursue this agenda. In the press conference this morning, uh, there were a few journalists from Spain asking specifically about their country and the the massive youth unemployment there. And you had quite strong words for them. What were you saying? Well, the first thing I said was, when because they asked what could Spain do, was to comment on what they could do internally. And I mentioned active labour market programmes, which means apart from supporting people with unemployment benefits, it means training, education and training, apprenticeships, uh, job creation. It's recognizing how important employment is for young people and putting high priority on creating education, training and employment for young people. The second thing Spain can do is to recognize that the troika of 
the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank and the European Commission, is foisting policies of austerity onto Spain that's making it very much harder for Spain to control its own affairs. And there's real worry that it causes things to cycle downhill. How is Greece or Spain ever going to get out of this debt trap they're in if their economy is being squeezed? They can't grow. And if their economy is being squeezed, it's going to throw young people on the scrap heap. And how are they going to get out of that? Or how are they going to have the money to invest in training opportunities for young people? So that's coming from elsewhere. And they have to resist that. Mm. So is that where the next battle lies in persuading kind of economists, classical economists, that actually these things matter economically? They're not just a, a social good or a health good. They're an economic good as well. The way I think we should enter the economist debate economists apostrophe <laughs> debate is not to pretend that we're cod economists or that we can adjudicate between those who think that Keynesian type stimulus is a good thing and those who think that austerity will somehow lead to growth. We could listen to that in Parliament every week and it gets us nowhere. Where I think we as health people can enter the debate is to say What's the likely impact on the lives people are able to lead of a given set of economic policies and hence the likely impact on health and health inequality? So, for example, we were commissioned by Institute of Health Equity, which, parenthetically, the BMA supports. Mm-hmm. My Institute of Health Equity was commissioned by the London Health Inequalities Network to look at the likely impact of the recession and the policies put in place to deal with the recession on health inequalities of Londoners. We focused on three things, income, housing, and employment. And we said that without paying proper attention to those, the danger was there would be adverse impact on income, housing, and employment, and that in turn would have adverse impact on health and other things being equal, would increase health inequalities. So we weren't trying to sound a note of doom, saying, oh God, things are going to get worse. What we were trying to say is, pay attention. Don't let these things get worse, because otherwise you will damage people's health. So it's a way of saying, let's put health and health equity, the fair distribution of health, at the centre of all policy making. So my response to the economist is, I can't look at your econometric models and say who's right. I know there are some Nobel laureates who are arguing that Keynesianism is a better approach than expansionary austerianism, or whatever you call it. Um, but there's some powerful economists on the austerity side. We can't solve that. We health people can't solve that. But what we can do is look at which policies are going to have the most damaging impact on health equity, put health equity at the heart of all policy making. So, Michael Marmot, thank you very much. Thank you. And that report is available online, links from the podcast page. Now, Mabel Chu on when to order anti-nuclear antibody tests. 
I have with me on the phone Dr. Spencer Ellis, who's a consultant rheumatologist at Lister Hospital at Stevenage in the UK. Spencer's here to talk to us about when ordering an anti-nuclear antibody test is the right thing to do and what it means. Spencer, thank you for um, joining us today. Can you tell me if a patient were to come with me, say they're in their 20s or their 30s, and they have some history of arthralgia in, in their fingers, um, it may have been preceded by a, a viral infection a couple of months ago, but there's not really a lot more to the story than that. Is this the right time to order an ANA test? Uh, thank you for asking me to join you, Mabel. Um, what I would say is the key to using anti-nuclear antibody testing is to enhance your pre-test suspicion of lupus or related autoimmune rheumatic disease before making the request. This is because lupus shares many non-specific symptoms of tiredness, joint aches, muscle aches with a wide number of common conditions um, that would present to general practice and ANA is relatively common in the background population. So if you request ANA in patients without the right sort of clues, you're going to end up having positive results for lots of patients who actually don't have SLE. So from my point of view, as with all of medicine, it makes taking a good history absolutely fundamental. And the way you can do that is by using some specific questions that are particularly helpful in screening for SLE and um, other similar related conditions. So this would include asking about whether the joints have been swollen as well as painful. You always want to ask about um, skin rash and in particular photosensitive rash. Um, as well in, in lupus that has a, a most typically a, a distribution in the malar area of the face so that can be very helpful. Patients will often have symptoms of hair loss or alopecia, oral ulceration, um, and sometimes features of pleurisy or pericarditic type chest pain. I also think you don't want to forget the more nonspecific symptoms because fatigue is a very common feature of uh, SLE. The, the difference is that it's often overwhelming, uh, not just sort of straightforward tiredness. So once you've got features like these, you certainly have, they're much more typical of, uh, of uh, autoimmune rheumatic diseases, uh, what we used to call connective tissue disease, and they increase uh, your suspicion uh, of a, a condition such as lupus so that you can actually start to feel more confident that the ANA will have some relevance when requested. Uh, I would also uh, extend the questioning because lupus isn't the only condition where ANA testing might be helpful. And so I would also include in my, um, in my uh, history uh, questions as to whether the patient had experienced symptoms of dry mouth or dry and gritty eyes, perhaps accelerated dental decay or intermittent parotid swelling. Um, and those features might make me think about the possibility of Sjogren's syndrome. Um, other more nonspecific but still useful uh, um, symptoms that people experience are Raynaud's phenomenon, and um, that, again, is common in a number of different sorts of uh, autoimmune rheumatic disease. It's not diagnostic of lupus um, and uh, is very uh, commonly found in patients with scleroderma almost, almost all the time, actually. Um, you also want to make sure that you've asked about uh, features that are consistent with associated disorders, so conditions such as antiphospholipid syndrome. So I'd also include in my history uh, questions as to whether the patient had had uh, recurrent miscarriages, uh, maybe thromboembolism in the past, or migraine.
let's say a, a hypothetical patient, uh, not only uh, now on, on further history taking, uh, has arthralgia, but uh, let's say mouth ulcers and uh, is very prone to getting a, a, a rash on her face if uh, she's out in the sun. That would no doubt, from what you say, increase my suspicion of an autoimmune uh, rheumatic cause. So what are the tests I should now start thinking about ordering as a GP? So uh, I think in, the, in that circumstance, you've, you've increased your, um, your suspicion that uh, the presentation of joint pain actually might be part of perhaps an autoimmune rheumatic condition, as you state, and you've got a few more clues towards that. And so the initial testing is very much about uh, enhancing uh, your suspicion uh, and taking the case forward, if necessary, based on what else you find. So there are a couple of things that you, you need to do. The first thing is I would always recommend in those circumstances doing a bedside urine dipstick because you can do that before the patient has actually left your surgery and clearly a clear urine, a clear urine dip would be reassuring. Um, it doesn't exclude a diagnosis of lupus, but what it does do is it, mean, it does it make the uh, concern about renal involvement less. The second thing is that if there's blood and protein on the urine dip, I think that that would actually increase the urgency of pursuing investigation and particularly finding out whether there's any um, evidence of renal involvement. So your initial tests are going to include um, almost certainly a full blood count, an erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or perhaps plasma viscosity, depending on what is offered by your laboratory. Um, I would recommend that you check uh, urea and electrolytes. Sometimes liver function test is helpful. Um, and in particular, I think now you have enough justification to pursue anti-nuclear antibody and potentially uh, antibodies to extractable nuclear antigens, particularly if there's additional clues such as uh, sicker symptoms. Are there any other tests that uh, might be indicated to exclude important uh, differential diagnoses? Um, I think that there are, and I think that you'd additionally want to um, be requesting a CRP, and the ESR and CRP are, can often give you slightly different information. Um, you would almost definitely want to uh, request a test for rheumatoid arthritis and perhaps check rheumatoid uh, factor and uh, anti-CCP antibody, although taking into account that the malar skin rash in that circumstance might be less likely uh, uh, to lead you to that diagnosis. And then again, there are certain other conditions such as viral illnesses that may present with arthralgia and uh, skin rash. And depending on the patient's history and risk factors, um, you may wish to consider uh, extending uh, tests to include those. You mentioned the ANA and ENA tests. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what they actually mean? So the anti-nuclear uh, and extractable nuclear antibody tests are, are basically tests for um, a variety of nuclear and sometimes cytoplasmic antigens that are found in patients who have a wide variety of rheumatic diseases, uh, and they include uh, conditions such as systemic lupus, erythematosus, scleroderma, Sjogren's syndrome, and rheumatoid arthritis. They can, however, be found in non-rheumatic disease, um, and that creates false positives, and they can be found in normal individuals. So 
that's why it's very important to be wary about requesting the test unless you have some sense of what it is you're looking for when you uh, make the uh, request. And you say in your article too that a positive ANA may also be found with increasing age, uh, especially in women and in relatives of people with rheumatological disease as well. That's very important and so certainly when patients present for the first time in their 80s and they have a positive anti-nuclear antibody, I would regard that with caution unless there were strong features to indicate an underlying uh, rheumatic disorder. Um, uh, so increasing age pregnancy sometimes can also induce um, anti-nuclear antibodies. So can uh, a number of different drugs, which might include uh, procainamide and hydralazine. And occasionally, they can those uh, such drugs can also um, uh, result in drug-induced lupus. Um, and uh, finally, other um, different uh, non-rheumatic diseases, such as autoimmune hepatitis, primary biliary cirrhosis, Crohn's disease, can all be associated with anti-nuclear antibodies. So there is some cross-reactivity. And if one's clinical suspicion is high enough to do uh, to request an ANA test, um, one should also automatically include an, a request for ENA testing? Um, certainly in this article, that is the line that we've uh, proposed. I think that there are uh, circumstances where um, ANA can be negative, but other antibodies such as anti-Rho antibody can be positive, perhaps because the condition isn't actually lupus, but something similar such as Sjogren's. Um, it's important to recognize that um, if you make a diagnosis of lupus, the majority of patients will actually have a positive ANA, so somewhere in the region of 90 to 95%. So making the diagnosis of lupus does tend to uh, go hand in hand with having a positive ANA. The, the, the flip side is that lots of people who have positive um, ANA therefore don't have SLE. Okay, let's say my patient has a positive ANA result and um, I'm concerned that there might be uh, an autoimmune problem lurking somewhere. I refer her to you as a rheumatologist. What are the key tests that you might do after that? So once um, I've got the referral, I'll obviously go over the history and look at the tests that I have to hand, and that would include re reviewing the, the full blood count and uh, of course, looking at the electrolytes, make sure there's no evidence of uh, renal impairment. Um, and then what you'd do is you'd probably want to extend your investigations a little bit further. If we assume that the extractable antibodies to extractable nuclear antigens have already been checked, um, that's, that sometimes is the case, sometimes isn't, but they can provide useful additional information and sometimes can indicate specific risks. So, for example, if you've got anti-Rho antibody and you've got a young patient in their 20s, that might later be relevant if they were proceeding um, with pregnancy, um, as it's associated with problems such as uh, fetal congenital heart block. The other thing that um, I would want to do is look at tests that can help me to assess um, sometimes uh, specific disease risk, but also help to confirm my diagnosis. So, for example, you'd want to check for double-stranded DNA. That has a high um, specificity for SLE, and, that's, and also there are other antibodies like that, such as anti-Smith antibody, both of which are included in the diagnostic criteria for lupus. 
And also you want to look for complement levels because complement consumption is a feature of active SLE. Um, and of course, if it's been, if there's been any interval between the original um, ESR and full blood count, you'd almost certainly want to repeat those um, because they can, they can change as disease progresses. I mentioned earlier that you may have associated conditions such as antiphospholipid syndrome, and I might wish to test for those um, antibodies using anticardiolipin antibodies, sometimes uh, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibody and lupus anticoagulant, um, if there were some additional clues in the history that they were, um, that, they, that those uh, could be relevant. Uh, such as a history of migraine, of uh, previous uh, recurrent miscarriage, or of previous thromboembolic disease, so DVT or um, pulmonary embolus. You mentioned doing a urinalysis early on in the piece. What are we looking for there? I think that uh, urinalysis um, is extremely important in terms of trying to assess for evidence of uh, nephritis. And the things that you would look for are blood and protein on the urine dipstick. If you find those, then further analysis, such as uh, urine um, uh, microscopy, looking for uh, red cell casts, and also perhaps a urine-protein-creatinine ratio, looking for evidence of proteinuria, are essential in taking forward the diagnosis. And you would need to look at those in context, in the context of um, perhaps albumin levels, the presence of uh, clinical edema, and also um, the creatinine levels. And any change in the creatinine um, that uh, might be evident, uh, of course, in a younger patient, you don't always have baseline, but in older patients, you often will. So once the diagnosis is made, how does one monitor patient, the patient's progress? Well, I think that the important thing is you monitor based on clinical findings, clearly, and any change in clinical symptoms. And then you, repeating the anti-nuclear antibody is not of value. If you've established a diagnosis of um, lupus, then you don't need to keep checking the ANA. But uh, repeating double-stranded DNA, um, which can rise with uh, a rising teta may indicate worsening disease, looking at complement levels, which often fall with worsening disease and also looking at the full blood count profile and ESR, they may all be very helpful in following the progress of your patient and perhaps warning you about potential relapse. Okay, um, all right, so to summarize, it's, it's absolutely vital that one takes a full clinical um, history and undertakes a, a proper examination to look for clinical features that might be fundamental to deciding whether someone has a, a, some a diagnosis of uh, an autoimmune problem. Um, and we'd be looking for things like photosensitivity, alopecia, mouth, mouth ulcers and, and arthritis. Uh, then you mentioned some other basic tests that could be done as well as um, uh, ANA and ENA, and that might include a, a urinalysis, a blood count, ESR and CRP. You've mentioned the fact that um, although 95% of SLE patients are ANA positive, it's not actually such a specific test. So we need to bear that in mind if um, the result is positive and to um, marry that with clinical features. That's all for this week. We'll be back next time with more from the world of medicine. But if you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more from our back catalogue or from any of our sister journals, have a look at podcasts.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.